Our subject this evening is education for freedom. Education for freedom. This is the basic question in education. The basic curriculum in any society is called the liberal arts curriculum. Consider for a moment what that means. The word liberal in its root form comes from the Latin libera, meaning free. Liberal arts are the arts of being a free man. Thus, the liberal arts curriculum is an answer to the question, what must a man do to be free? That question is simply another form of stating, what shall a man do to be saved? Education is fundamentally and essentially religious. In any society, whether it be a primitive tribe in the jungles of the Amazon, or the most sophisticated societies of the Western world, if you want to know what the religion of the people or of the culture is, examine their education. This means clearly, does it not? Far too many who take the name of Christ in the Western world, their religion is not that of Scripture, but is rather humanism. Because the purpose of education is to answer this question, what must a man do to be free? These are the liberal arts. How we educate depends on how we answer that question. This is why you cannot simply take over a humanistic school's curriculum and sprinkle holy water on it. It must, root and branch, be Christian in conception, because it must communicate the Christian doctrine of freedom. If the Son of Man make you free, then are ye free indeed. No other way. If we believe that, we have to educate in terms of it. We cannot allow another doctrine of salvation to come into our school. Thus it is more than chapel and the Bible department, we need to watch for fear that false doctrine creep in. We must remake the whole curriculum and be sure that in the whole curriculum, a thoroughly biblical concept of education prevails. Education is for freedom. To deliver a man from those evils and problems which beset him. Now humanism has had a variety of answers to this question, 
and humanistic education accordingly has had a variety of answers to the problem. These various answers can be summed up in three heads. Incidentally, it is interesting to me how when some educators ask this question, how shall a man be free, what constitutes a liberal art, they use more or less religious and semi-biblical language. Recently, one educator, in dealing with this question, went back to a Hebrew myth about the Garden of Eden in order to frame the question and to say, your answer to this will determine which school you belong to. Now, according to this Hebrew myth, when God created Eve, Satan imitated God and created a demon woman to give Adam a choice. And so you had the creation of Lilith, L-I-L-I-T-H. So Adam had two women in the Garden of Eden. And that question is asked now in order to pinpoint, in terms of the answer, what a man's philosophy of education is in terms of a humanistic tradition. Whether Adam rejected Lilith or uh, chose her or whatnot. Let me add that the Hebrew myth gives uh, a somewhat different answer than contemporary psychologists and educators. It says that Adam chose them both. Now, these three schools that answer this question are, first of all, that school of which Rousseau is perhaps the most typical and best-known figure. In terms of this educational tradition, man is seen as naturally good. Sin is not in man, but in his environment and in false education. And therefore, the purpose of education is to unrestrain man, to clear away from his environment everything that would impose upon him various restraints that would thereby hinder his natural goodness. Thus, in such a plan of education or salvation, you would say we must eliminate the influence of the family and of the church and of a reactionary society, and on top of that we must be radically permissive of the child, because the child's natural goodness must be allowed to flower. The child must be free. Now, this particular answer is not only deeply embedded in contemporary educational theory, but also in our contemporary culture, especially in our youth culture. 
the cry of recent years, I want to be free, is a very direct and clear-cut expression of this doctrine. As a result, we have a problem with a great many parents who, because they have a background in this kind of thinking, even though they may think themselves to be Bible-believing Christians, are still going to be very happy because your schooling is going to emphasize discipline, it is going to emphasize drill and more drill, and to them this will seem like a horrible thing. They think, you see, when they think of schooling, in humanistic terms. Now, a second school has given an answer to this, which goes back before Rousseau. The great figure in the modern world is John Locke. However, Locke's ideas go back emphatically to St. Thomas Aquinas, and Thomas Aquinas very clearly plucked them in pure form, out of Aristotle. According to this doctrine, man's mind, when he is born, is a blank comparable to a blank tablet or paper. It has no predisposition in any direction. It is neutral. And therefore, education is everything. Education will mold the child totally, if the educator can control the child totally. Those who are in this tradition will not be necessarily averse to discipline, provided it is a classical or humanistic discipline, provided they create and impose the discipline. Now, we have this doctrine still very much with us, not as predominant as it was in the 18th century. It is still essentially the doctrine of the Roman Catholic parochial schools and their philosophy of education. Apart from the fact that it has a false doctrine of man, as do all these humanistic philosophies of education, it has another serious effect. Its view of man is that he is essentially passive. If man's mind is a blank tablet, then it is the environment, which means the world around him, especially his elders or educators, which mold the mind of the child. You have a kind of thinking that Watson and behaviorism represented. 
As I pointed out in a previous evening, Watson held that, given the child from almost the cradle, he could take that child and make it into a chemist, a physicist, a concert violinist, or anything at will, because the mind of man is totally passive and totally plastic. And so you have a conception here of a plastic man, not the kind of creature Scripture tells us God created to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth and recreated in Christ to be a king, priest, and prophet unto him. No, on the contrary, you have a very passive person who is a social product. Then the third doctrine of education in, with respect to the nature of man is that man is evil. And sometimes there seems to be a superficial resemblance between the position of this third group of educators and humanistic thinkers, the first and most notable being not an educator but a political theorist, Machiavelli. There seems to be a superficial resemblance between this school of thought and Christian doctrine. However, there is a fundamental difference. This doctrine says, indeed, man is corrupt. Man is evil. This doctrine is very much ready to agree with Freud's analysis of man. Freud held that man has three aspects to his being. First, there is the id. I.D., the will to pleasure. The id manifests itself as a totally heedless, totally contemptuous will to assert oneself and to gratify oneself irrespective of any law. The id is the pleasure principle. It is a totally corrupt thing in terms of anything that anyone can formulate. In terms of Freud's basic thinking, the three basic urges of the id, and his thinking at this point is derived from Robertson Smith, who was the most influential man in influencing Old Testament studies in modernistic circles, his religion of the Semites. It is a theory from anthropology which says that the basic urge of sinful man is the incest, parasite, killing the father, and cannibalism. This is the will to pleasure. But man has at the same time the ego 
The ego is the will to death. The ego recognizes the realities of the outer world and says, Don't do it, it is dangerous. If you assert your will to pleasure, the ego tells the id, you will be in serious trouble. So the ego is the will to death. It continually pronounces judgment on Freud's man. The third aspect is not as basic as the will to death, the id, and the, or which is the pleasure principle, and the will, or I mean the uh, will to life, which is the pleasure principle, the id, and the ego, the will to death, the reality principle. The third principle or aspect of man's being is the superego, S-U-P-E-R-E-G-O. The superego tells man that, well, this is what your society and your church and school wants you to do. So the superego is derived from education that Freud held it was the weakest element in man. As a result, Freud was skeptical about any future for humanity. He recognized that he was both the ultimate in the development of humanism, but he also recognized rather cynically that with him, humanism had reached a dead end and was committing suicide. However, some of the Freudians since then have said, ah, but the elite man, the man of science, the man of reason, can analyze this problem in himself between the id and the ego and overcome the tension and thereby overcome his problem. And he can control society and thereby govern the many. Thus, in terms of this third view, which supposedly parallels to a degree our doctrine of sin, but is in actuality far different, man is, in some sense, a sinner, we might say, but To see him truly as a sinner, you have to see him in terms of God. And you have to recognize in terms of scripture that there is none righteous. No, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That no man can save himself. But in terms of the third doctrine, which is increasingly the more sophisticated form of humanistic educational theory, an elite group, by taking over control of society, can thereby provide salvation for man. Now, there are varieties of the various doctrines I've enunciated, just as in this third form you can have the pure Marxist form as well as the very pure Freudian form of this. But in both of these and in other interpretations, it is essentially an elite minority which solves its personal problem with evil and thereby governs. 
I think it should be apparent to you that all three of these, as they answer the question, what must a man do to be free or to be saved, are giving radically anti-Christian answers. This is why state certification of Christian school teachers is so dangerous a step. Your Christian school teachers will be put through a rival plan of salvation which will never be labeled exactly what it is. The two basic instruments of salvation in all three of these doctrines are, first, education, and second, state planning and control. So the plan of salvation for all three involves various forms of education, control of education, and state planning by control. Moreover, in all three cases, this freedom or salvation of man is not only to be attained by natural means, but it requires freedom from God and freedom from God's law. It is imperative in these programs that there be no thou shalt not imposed from outside of the human universe. The only thou shalt not must come from man. The anarchist or existentialist will say the thou shalt not is that which any individual establishes for himself. And he is not bound by what he establishes because in ten seconds he can change his mind. In terms of the collectivist approach, it leads to what I believe I referred to previously in another meeting as fiat law. Fiat, F-I-A-T. What is fiat law? Well, the word fiat comes from the Vulgate text of the Bible, the Latin text. And in Genesis 1, we read, Fiat looks, let there be light. Fiat, therefore, means the creation of anything by the simple declaration of the God of that system. In the modern world, thus, we have fiat law, not God's law. The problem in Dade County was fiat law, which Christians were trying to overthrow. The problem with our money today is that it is fiat money, not gold nor silver, but paper, because the state says the state is the creator of value. Our laws 
as they are passed by legislators and congressmen, are fiat laws. They have no reference to the Word of God. Their framework of reference is to the will of the state. So that man wants not only freedom from God, but fiat law. And he wants, therefore, to assert this aspect of fiat law and the necessity of the fiat in his educational system. As a result, the child will be taught very early that it is either individual decisions or group planning that decide all things in life. But all issues are open issues for a man. That there are no thou shalt not, no word that declares, thus saith the Lord. Recently, the papers carried the account of the fact that Leonard Bernstein, the composer and conductor, had left his wife of 25 years. There was apparently no problem and no quarrel between them. But, he said, as death approaches and is seen somewhere in the not-too-distant future, a man must cast off everything and create in complete freedom and live the rest of his life as he wants. This is the modern mood. I want to be free. It means not only freedom from God, but freedom from man, freedom from responsibility to others. It means I shall be as God, knowing or determining for myself what constitutes good and evil. Thus, education becomes self-realization, either in an individualistic, anarchistic sense or in a social, collectivist sense. Freedom means, moreover, using the scientific method to overcome all problems. It means that man's mind is the judge, and the ultimate recourse in all situations is the mind of man. Now, freedom in the modern world as a result becomes, as we have seen in recent years, defiance, rebellion, and revolution. If nothing binds man to God, if there is no law of God that says, thus far, no further, this is the way, walk ye in it. If God cannot compel man, how much less can man compel man? This is the reason why the collectivist answers run into problems. 
in collectivist societies, the further they get away from a Christian background, the more radical is the breakdown within the culture. Thus, in the Soviet Union, they have found that as they now are dealing with the third generation of those born since the revolution, they are less able to get work out of them. They have less of the Christian background and discipline. They are more inclined to freedom in the sense of defiance, rebellion, and revolution. As a matter of fact, the two most popular things in the Soviet Union among the youth today are rock records and faded past blue jeans. I will take a moment to tell you of an amusing little episode in connection with that. A doctor I know in California gave his son a VW to be picked up in Europe when he got there, and funds enough to spend the summer driving around Europe with his VW and seeing Europe. The young man went over there, and he took clothes in terms of staying at uh, youth camps and going hither and yon. Uh, with freedom. So he took along that which at that moment in the latter part of the 60s was exceedingly popular, the faded past teens. He decided to go into the Soviet Union. So he left the border and started, and he had been warned at the border that he could not make any unauthorized stops. That if he did, he would be subject to arrest. He could take no pictures. That gas would be available only in certain places and only within a certain hour. Well, as he proceeded to drive, wondering all the time, every time he saw some shrubbery and bushes, is there a guard post or box hidden there? And, of course, not knowing the answer, but knowing that this was indeed being done. He suddenly realized that in his excitement to cross the border, he had not made a restroom stop. So finally, in desperation, he pulled over to the side of the road. And he got out of the car and suddenly heard a sound in the uh, brush, and he said, Oh, Siberia, here I come. <laughs> well, he was so paralyzed with fright, it took him a few minutes to understand what the young man who struck the step out of the shrubbery was saying to him in rather crude English. He wanted to buy his jeans. And because he was so petrified, it took him a while to come to, come to the young Russian, who turned out to be the son of 
a very prominent and highly placed Russian official, kept raising his bid so that by the time he opened his mouth to say yes, he had enough rubles to take care of his entire Russian state. And through this young Russian, he had an entree into a Russian world where the ultimate was rock music and genie. Having nothing else, this to them is the ultimate. And their dedication exceeds that which we sometimes find to our distress around us. Man's mind, you see, becomes ultimate. And if man is ultimate, man must declare his rebellion from everything around him, otherwise he is not free. God cannot command man, how much less so man. Some of you are perhaps familiar with Andre Malraux. M-A-U-L-R-A-U-X. Myra is, or was rather, a very prominent existentialist, a former Marxist who became right-hand man to de Gaulle. In his autobiography, Myra sums up his philosophy in three words. I love to forward. I love to displease. I love to displease. I think that's a temper that you can recognize in the world around us. It's very prevalent in our culture. The free person for many, many young people is the one who displeases the most. And as a result, we find that our best pupils in humanistic education are those who rebel the most against parents, teachers, and society. And there are many educators who apply to this. One of the recent works in education that I picked up a few months ago, made that statement very flatly. The man, a professor of the philosophy of education, said it is time we stopped apologizing for the student revolutionaries. They represent not the failure of the modern schools, but its triumph. Their war against the establishment and their displeasure with everything around them is a mark, he said, of health. This is why so many of these educational philosophers are not about to change. They want more of the same, and they want to command your schools to institute more of the same in your own circles. The goal of education, says Frank L. Fields, is, quote, a personally meaningful purpose system, unquote. He stresses that it must be personally meaningful. 
It cannot be something that is religiously meaningful, where the meaning is God-given, parentally imposed, or imposed by the school or society, or by the church. It must be personally meaningful. It must be that which the child wants to do. This means there can be no imposed system or faith or philosophy imposed by either God or man. Recently I read about a new form of art which uses fruits, lacquers them sometimes, sometimes just paints them to exhibit. And it says very flatly that one of the glories of this attempt to create a new school is that it gives us an art that does not last, because there is no permanency today. And they sum it up this way, art today, garbage tomorrow. Now, we can apply that same concept to education, you see. It says, education today, garbage tomorrow. If it is to be only personally meaningful, that's quite all right. It means the individual has the freedom to say, this is everything to me now, and tomorrow to say it is garbage. Education thus becomes perpetual revolution. This is why we miss the boat if we fail to recognize that the modern philosophers of education in the United States and throughout the Western world are now far more radical than the Marxist educators. And there is conflict between them. This came out as early as the 30s in Counts and uh, Kilpatrick and others because they opposed the Marxist idea of a planned society, a once-for-all plan, the communist world revolution. They said, no, it must be a constantly planning society, ever planning and ever revising its plan because there is no truth to anything and therefore our plan of education must continually be subject to fresh planning. The result, of course, means for the child within the educational system that practices such a philosophy is mental problems, instability, an inability to be self-disciplined and to focus their attention on anything. The education will not blame itself. It will say that the child is autistic or has some other problem, but it is not a product of the philosophy of education.
Now, in one area in particular, the conflicting ideas of freedom appear most dramatically in our society today. Because very often what the Christian says is freedom is slavery and bondage to the humanist. And what the humanist says is freedom is slavery and bondage to the Christian. Thus, let us begin by saying both the humanists in all the various schools and Christians believe in sexual freedom. But they define it differently. For the humanist, sexual freedom means an independence from the laws of God and of man. A freedom to do one's own thing. It means sexual permissiveness and even more an aggressive anti-Christian idea of sexuality. But for us that is not freedom but slavery. And for us, freedom sexually means full obedience to the word of God. It means that there is only one means to sexual freedom, and that is godly marriage. And this is a blessing. It is freedom for man. But any departure from that particular requirement and standard as dictated by the word of God is slavery to sin. Thus for us, you see at every point, there is a radically different concept of freedom. And the schools, with their ideas of freedom, must at every point represent for us not freedom, but slavery to sin, slavery to the tempter and his program of education. For us it is the word, the law of God, that is freedom. When God says, this is the way, walk ye in it, our hearts respond, lo, I come. Following our Redeemer, we say, to do thy will, O God. We see that our obligation is under God to be a neighbor to men in terms of the word of God. Humanism says with regard to responsibility that it is at best responsibility to our society, to our country, and to humanity. Collective man replaces God as the agency to whom man is responsible. So that an institution is deified, the state in this case, in ancient Chinese ancestor worship, it was the family that was deified and made God in society. But whatever the form of the humanism, collective man replaces God as that agency to which man is responsible. 
And man's conscience is to be governed by that human agency. In the second form, man is responsible only to his existential self. He replaces God. In either case, both humanistic doctrines mean freedom from God as the way to man's salvation. For us as Christians, man is always and in all things responsible to God. At every point when he transgresses, it is against God. Because if he transgresses against another person, he is transgressing against a creature of God, the property of God. This David saw when he declared in the 50th Psalm, after he had been guilty both of adultery with Bathsheba and of the murder of Uriah, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight. He saw that sin is warfare against God. But at each point he was striking out against the boundaries God had established and seeing another means to his own freedom. But that freedom is freedom from sin. This means, therefore, is freedom from ourselves as well as from other men. Freedom to be God's covenant people in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, when Adam fell, seeking to be his own God, he became a slave. And he found himself not in freedom, but in bondage to sin and in warfare. In warfare against God. And every sinner is first and last at war with God. Secondly, at warfare with his neighbor. So that every sinner is at all times at war with the world around him. And he cannot live at peace with anyone else. The wicked are like the troubled sea which cannot rest. They perpetually pass up mire and dirt. But third, the sinner is also at war with himself. God has created him for his own pleasure and glory. And when a man departs from the purposes of God, he is at war with his own being. In Psalm 139, we have a magnificent statement of this. The psalmist describes how he sought to flee from God. Lord, said to the innermost parts of the world, Behold, thou art there. Though I make thy bed in hell, behold, thou art there. The darkness and the light 
cannot hide me from thee. They both shine like the light, like a spotlight upon me to expose thee. Wherever he goes, the sinner finds his own being witnessing against himself. David said, when I try to keep balance, my bones wax loud with their roaring. Perhaps the most beautiful single form in the English language is Francis Thompson's The Hound of Heaven. How many of you, by the way, know that poem? Very good. I think it repays attention by all of you. Francis Thompson echoes there not only the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 139 and St. Augustine's Confession, but also his own experience. He begins by declaring, I fled him down the nights and down the days and down the labyrinthine altars of the years. And he goes on to describe how in pleasure, in laughter, in friends, in children, in love, in one thing after another, he sought to escape from God. But always, he says, with unperturbed faith, there comes after him the pursuing feet of the Almighty. He finds again and again all things escape thee when you seek to escape me. And all things witness to the Lord so that in nothing there is a refuge. It's a magnificent thought, well worth your attention. Man, you see, is at war with God, with his fellow men, and with himself. And this is why there is no freedom for man in all these non-Christian philosophies of education, because they do not come to grips with the problem of sin. Their doctrine of freedom offers slavery, not freedom. Christian education, that is not the curriculum with the Bible added to it, but a curriculum which is totally governed by the Word of God. This is why only the Christian school can have a truly liberal art curriculum. No other school can. It's very interesting that in World War II, the federal government saw the irrelevance of the liberal arts curriculum, because it was the one thing for which there was no draft deferment. Those in charge of setting up the standards felt it was irrelevant. They were right. Much as the humanists have spent generations trying to develop a plan of salvation through humanistic education, in a critical crisis, the first thing they de-emphasized was the liberal arts curriculum. 
It is irrelevant to man's problem. It cannot save. It cannot give freedom. It only gives bondage. As a result, the basic thinking in terms of education for the future will either be done by us or it will not be done at all. Humanistic education is bankrupt. It is at a dead end. And therefore, however much money may be poured into it, it is going nowhere. This is why they are so badly frightened by Christian schools. They recognize that the initiative is now in Christian school hands. I have it sometime or other been in a debate occasionally with a secular professor of education. And sooner or later they have an excuse for it, of course, some reason why it is the case. They recognize that they are not able to compete with you. They have the money, but they cannot produce. And they are ready to turn to more and more coercive answers. So that they can command the children. Because while they recognize their failure, they refuse to believe that the answer can come from Jesus Christ. Because they are unbelievers. The eyes of their understanding are darkened. There is a difference between us and the unregenerate. That difference is Jesus Christ. It is a fearful sin ever to end underestimate that difference in any area of life and certainly to underestimate it in education is a grievous defense against our Lord. Are there any questions there? Yes. Mm-hmm. I cannot comment on Francis Schaeffer's How Then Shall We Live because I haven't seen the film or had the opportunity yet to read the book. So, I'm sorry. Yes, the question is with respect to academic freedom. 
And in one case recently, in a particular school, an educator brought in these strokes to show. Well, the easiest way to state my answer is very flatly and bluntly. I do not believe in the doctrine of academic freedom as it exists today. I believe that, right or wrong, the person who owns or operates the school is the one who has the freedom. But it's his responsibility to make the decisions. If he makes a mistake, that's his particular burden or responsibility. The doctrine of academic freedom has a long history, and it goes back to the medieval period. It was first formulated, really, in the University of Paris in the Middle Ages. You have the doctrine of the divine right of kings formulated, that the king represented the voice of God, as it were, and therefore was above criticism and correction by the people. You had a similar doctrine developed in the church, which culminated finally in the doctrine of papal infallibility. Then within the university tradition, you had a like doctrine developed, namely, that the educator represented in some sense the voice of God. A fourth form that has since become very popular is democracy. The voice of the people is the voice of God. But at any rate, the doctrine of academic freedom comes directly out of that concept. It asserts that the academician is above control and correction. That his freedom represents the kind of divine right and divine freedom which no one dare tamper with. I believe in academic freedom in the sense that if I don't like what a school is doing, I'm free to go out for and start my own school. But as long as I'm there, if the school makes mistakes, that's their right to do so. It's not my right to tell them they're wrong or to fight with them about it. I think the doctrine of academic freedom is a very deadly and dangerous notion. And the fact that most of society today has bought it is a very ugly fact. We have a similar doctrine today that is becoming more and more menace. A similar doctrine or doctrine of the freedom of the press. So that the press can slander a man and unless you prove willful intent, they are not responsible. And so there are all kinds of frauds regularly printed by the press. Lies and no responsibility. The court back to press. Now, the press should be free to think the truth. They should be equally responsible and liable if they violate the truth. Today, they do it with impunity. 
They are above correction. If you tamper with their right, you are somehow a, a fascist, a very evil person. I think we need to knock the doctrine of academic freedom and the faith that is behind it in the head, wherever it appears, in its every form. I couldn't be more emphatically against it. Well, that certainly produced a silence. <laughs> Ideal would be a truly Christian government. First of all, it must be a government, a civil government, that recognizes the priority of God and of His work. Let me say here that the term government, as we use it today, was not used in the early days of this country. They, when they said government, did not mean the state. Government was first of all the self-government of the Christian man. Then it was the family, which is an area of government. Then it was the school, which is an area of government. Then it was the church. Then it was one's vocation. Whatever work you do, it governs you. Then it was society. We are governed by the society around us and its standards. And then finally, it is civil government. So civil government or the state is one of a number of forms of government. Now, in a godly society, civil government will not try to be the umbrella saying we control everything and everything is under our jurisdiction. That is the old pagan concept of the state. The state is God controlling every sphere, education, religion, medicine, the arts and sciences, and so on. Our doctrine of the state today is pagan. Then, a biblical doctrine of civil government will see the role of the state as ministerial, not Legislative. What does that mean? Well, we can understand what that means in terms of, of the very word minister. A preacher is a minister. How does he speak? He speaks from behind the pulpit and the word of God. He speaks out of the word of God. It governs his preaching if he is at all a faithful minister. A ministerial society does not create laws out of its own head. It legislates in terms of the word of God. A legislative society says man can make his own laws so that what man thinks is good in his own eyes is therefore law. Today we have a legislative society in that our law-making bodies 
act as though they were the determiners of right and wrong. But there is no standard beyond what they decree. I may have mentioned to you the experience with Senator John Tunney, who, thanks to his job, lost the election and has now been retired, albeit with a fat pension, who, when he was confronted at the Disneyland Hotel about a year ago by some of the right-to-life people, said that it was wrong to condemn abortion because the majority of people were in favor of it, and therefore it was right. He was asked, do you mean it was tomorrow the majority of the people are in favor of theft? Not wrong, not effect. It would be right to steal. And he said, yes, it would be right to steal. Now that's a legislative concept of the state. It's an anti-Christian concept. So very briefly, there's much, much more that could be said. And I am working on a book on the theology of the state. But, uh, in brief, that would be the bare bones of the Christian doctrine of the state or civil government. Any other questions? Yes. The question is, when and where in our history did we turn from a Christian perspective to a humanistic one? In the colonial era, the Puritan faith, of course, dominated a great deal of New England and spread by the time of the War of Independence to the Middle States and some of the Southern States. By the end of the war, the stronghold of Puritanism was in the South. The Bible Belt is a, a direct descendant of Southern Puritanism, which dominated into the 1850s in the South. About 1815, Unitarianism began to develop in New England. One of the problems in New England that led to the decline was that it was the clergy who had been most involved in the Great Awakening were the most involved in making a stand against King George III and the invasion of this country by parliamentary troops. As a matter of fact, one British by the period actually characterized uh, the war as a Scots-Irish Presbyterian rebellion because some of the Puritan clergy was outstanding in it. Well, this meant that you had your Puritan clergy in the North and South heavily involved in the chaplaincy and in actual field combat. It meant, too, that very commonly the British forces 
took vengeance on these men by burning down the Puritan churches, whether they were those of the uh, Congregationalists or the Presbyterians or the Baptists, because one of the leading Puritan figures of the time was Isaac Bacchus, B-A-C-K-U-S, who's the real father of the Baptist churches in this country and a most remarkable man. How many of you know anything about Isaac Bacchus? Just a couple of you. Well, if you're a Baptist, I would strongly urge you to read the writings of Isaac Bacchus. I believe the Yale University Press is the press that is beginning to publish his corrupted works. A very, very wonderful man. As a result, when the war ended, it was precisely these churches that were the weakest. They were burned out, some of their clergy were dead. By the time they were able to rebuild and begin to recuperate, the war broke out. They seemed well, and then Unitarianism. Well, after that, the real center was only in the South, by and large. But the South had also a decline in the 1850s. There was a tremendous revival in the Southern troops during the war. But it was after the war, with the South brought on its back, that the Puritanism of the South, which had been an object of tremendous hostility on the part of the Unitarian abolitionists. They were as much hostile, if not more so, to the Southern Puritanism as they were to the institution of slavery. And that's one aspect that we're not told about normally. They hated it with a passion. As a result, the real decline set in after 1864. This country had a double shock at that period. First, the war and the damage it did to the churches, and second, the fact that in 1859, just before the war broke out, Darwin's book came out. And the church here was too little occupied with theology to be able to cope with the influence of Darwinism. This may surprise you, but it was not until the 90s that there was any real resistance to Darwin's thoughts within the church. And it was then that the series of papers entitled The Fundamentals were published. Well, World War I further increased the damage done, and World War II, in a sense, climaxed it. You see, in the modern world, the basic form of revolution is warfare. Because warfare so thoroughly requires the regimentation of society that it has now a safer means of accomplishing various revolutions within that society. However, we must say that since 18, uh, 1950, 
we have seen not only a very rapid collapse within this country morally, religiously, politically, and economically, as far as any principles are concerned, we have in those years also seen the big beginnings of the most important revivals in American history, and the key to that revival is a different one than in all others. It is the Christian school. I believe in 20 to 30 years it will change the character of the United States. I think we have time perhaps for one question or two short ones. Yes. Would I comment on the idea that men ought to be forced to be free? Well, that is an idea, of course, that comes directly from Rousseau. The phrase, forced to be free, is Rousseau's. It is emphatically not Christian. You cannot force men to be free, that is, to be born again. As a result, the idea presupposes a collectivist control over man and society. Now, we believe in governing our children, but we do not believe that the state should govern them, the family, in terms of God's word, is the custodian of the children. That's a very different thing. It's a natural control of the child for his welfare and in, and one which the child's nature is in conformity to. Because the child loves to please his parent. The child's world revolves around the parent. But it's different when the state enters in with coercion. So the doctrine forced to be free is very important in the modern world, but it is a thoroughly ugly and anti-Christian doctrine. Well, I think with that, our time is over.